We're going to be in Psalm 116. If you'll <clears throat> take your Bibles and turn there, and of course, we'll have the text on the screen as we look through it as well. Psalm 116. There are a lot of psalms which focus on thanksgiving. There's only one that actually has the inscription, a psalm of thanksgiving, which in the Hebrew Bible is verse 1. But this is also a psalm of thanksgiving. And let's begin this morning by reading it and focusing on it together. We don't have uh, dinner after this at the church. We don't have an afternoon service. Let's just focus for a little while on Psalm 100. It doesn't mean it's going to be really, really long. I'm just saying, let's just put everything aside, okay? And uh, he's priming us. That's what he's doing. No, no, no. Let's just, let's just focus on these beautiful, wonderful words of Psalm 116. The psalmist begins, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. And the psalm in Hebrew ends, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Verse 12 is our focal point this morning out of all the things that we could observe about this song. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The word render is the simple Hebrew word you see all throughout the Old Testament. It's the word shuv. It means to turn. In this case, it means to turn around and give back. It's a gift but it's a gift in response, in return for something that has been given. You notice what the psalmist is thinking God has given to him as you read the psalm. I don't know for you what the earliest gift you can remember giving is. For most of us, it was likely a gift given to our parents that we proudly made ourselves. 
I remember in public school, as the Christmas season approached, our teachers would have us making gifts to give to our parents, usually involving yarn and popsicle sticks and uh, construction paper and, and finger paints back in our public school in, in Michigan in the 70s. Uh, on Christmas morning, we would offer our parents these crudely made gifts, often wrapped in homemade wrapping paper created out of newspaper that was stamped or you know, painted with finger paints. And they would unwrap these gifts revealing cup coasters or placemats or ornaments or things like that. Now, our children were homeschooled, so they were not led to create gifts such as these. But instead, I don't know where they got the idea, but they would give us random objects that they had found around the house, and they would wrap them in bathroom tissue and, and place them under the tree. And they were so excited that we would open them and, and figure out what was inside. And you, you peeled away the tissue, and you would find a, a AA battery or a stapler or, or, or silverware. And like one day, Rena was like, where's my hairbrush? I'm like, did you check under the tree? And uh, sure enough, there's a little oblong uh, gift wrapped under there. And she says, like, can I open this now? Sure, you know, and I wonder if she knows what it is. And uh, that's what went on, I mean, for weeks leading up to Christmas. And of course, as a parent, you're touched by your child's desire to give you something. They're so excited for you to accept the gift, even if, if the giving is meager or uninformed. But think for a moment about how it must be to God when we offer anything to Him. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, James 1.17 says. That means that God is the source of all good and perfect gifts. So it follows that the greatest gifts we could offer God are just what He owns already. The Lord tells us in Psalm 50, 10 through 12, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. The Lord is speaking these words in Psalm 50 while he's instructing his people concerning their offering of gifts in his temple. And of course, we can make no argument. I mean, what can we possibly give to the Lord that he doesn't already own? Our resources, our time, our energy, our talents, they're all from him. He owns them already. When we give to the Lord, whatever it is, there is a sense in which we're like little children finding trinkets in the house that God already owns and presenting them back to Him. In fact, Augustine famously said, even when God rewards my labors, He is only crowning His own works in me. This is the same dilemma in which the writer of this psalm finds himself in when he asks in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? This is an excellent question from a sincere heart of gratitude to God. What can I possibly give to God that would serve as an adequate expression of our thanks, that would measure up to what he has done for us? 
But after he asks this question, the psalmist answers it. And he answers it in such a way that it instructs our own thanksgiving to God. You see, the psalm can be divided into two main sections. If you have the scripture there, if you look in verses 1 through 11, the psalmist recounts this near-death experience out of which the Lord delivered him. He doesn't say exactly what it is, what surrounded this trial, but we know that his life was threatened. If you look at verse 3, it says, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And you look down at verse 8, he says, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And in verse 15, he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We can also detect that the psalmist was the victim of some form of unfaithfulness or deceit. If you look back at verse 11, he says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Perhaps he was troubled by a sickness that led him to be rejected by men, or perhaps evil that was done to him by his enemies caused a decline in health. We can only guess. But we do need to know, not necessarily the details of his illness, but what he's talking about when he says, I want to thank the Lord. I want to render to him something for what he has given to me. The psalmist here is not writing the psalm to tell us what happened to him. He's writing this psalm to testify what God has done for him. And that's our focus. So after verse 11, verse 12 is the hinge which turns the psalm. The hinge is the question in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord? Everything before this is about the trial. Everything after it is how he answers this question. Looking back on how God delivered him in the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 11, he anticipates how he will thank God that the deliverance Uh, will come. And in the second half of the psalm, verses 13 through 19, is the half where he expresses his thankfulness, a thankfulness that is worthy of God. You see, we who know Christ, we are in the same situation as the psalmist. In fact, a worse situation. Uh, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The snares of death encompassed us. It's true. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of us dragging us down to eternal death. We may have been unaware of it, but we were destined for an eternity of distress and anguish most profound and horrifying, more than the psalmist has experienced. But as Paul said in Ephesians Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Truly, God has delivered our soul from death through the person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, He also has transformed us to new life in Christ. Deliverance from eternal punishment would have been far more than we ever deserved beyond our imagination. That would be enough for the psalmist to write and say, what can I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? 
But God has given us so much more. His justification and sanctification and reconciliation and redemption. We have peace with God. He's given us his mercy. He's given us his grace. The list goes on and on. Truly, our hearts should overflow with gratitude. The kind that cries out, what can I say or do to express my thanks to God for all that he has done for me? What could make a gift worthy of him? Any attempt to offer something to God leaves us like mere children offering unremarkable gifts. And yet there is an answer to this question. As we listen to the words of the psalm, we discover that our expressions of thanks to God are appropriate, they're fitting, they're worthy of God in that sense, when they are marked by at least three qualities that come from the heart. These are heart qualities. Now, this is not to say that our thanksgiving is only a matter of the heart, and God doesn't care about the expression of it. We know that God desires certain things that we express in our thanks to Him, our giving, our sacrifice, our service. But any tangible expression of our thanks is hollow unless it is accompanied by these qualities. I should also say that these qualities go together. They're very similar, you'll see. It's difficult to imagine having one of them without the other two. But we should consider each of them while asking the Lord, are there expressions of my praise and worship Are they filled with a gratitude that measures up to what God has done for me? So, what are these qualities that come from our heart that make our thanksgiving worthy of God? The first one this morning is a heart of sincerity, a heart of sincerity. In other words, when we truly mean to give thanks, when it's intentional, I don't mean an effort of working up our emotions into what we think feels like gratitude. I mean really a very simple response of genuine gratitude for God's goodness and mercy and grace. The whole psalm opens up with these words, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The love that the psalmist has for God is a response to God's answer of his cry. But from there, as you look at the psalm, it moves to the question in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? This question is also a response to God's work. Now, if the psalmist is not sincere in his question, the psalm ends somewhere around here. I mean, saying the words, what shall I render to the Lord, can be a lot like the words, words cannot express my appreciation. Have you ever heard that before? Words cannot express my appreciation, but, but, but after those words are spoken, sometimes the person saying them doesn't even try <laughs> to express the words of appreciation. It sort of ends right there, and you wonder, how sincere was that? Or somebody asks, how can I possibly repay you? But he's not really planning on repaying you at all. Uh, And if the person being thanked were to say, well, I have a few ideas I can give you, you would be really surprised, you know. Okay, I wasn't planning on doing anything, but but, but, uh, I'm I'm, like like when when somebody says, how are you? And you actually tell them, you know, and they're like, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, Sometimes when we, we make expressions of thanks, they're sort of canned, they're cliches. We're not really meaning them. So how do we determine whether the author's gratitude is sincere when he says, what can I render to the Lord? 
How can we know it's not a cliche? Because he commits himself to specific acts that he renders to the Lord. He demonstrates that the question in verse 12 is sincere. We find this immediately in verses 13 and 14. Notice the repetition of I will. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Now, if you look down to verses 17 through 19, notice how he continues to commit himself to specific acts. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Now, the author of the psalm is not making up all of the stuff he's going to do. He's talking about a very specific set of responses that the law already instructed him to make if he wanted to express his thanksgiving to God. He's referring here to the thank offering, a specific offering detailed in the law. You can read all about it in Leviticus chapters 3 and 7, and references to this offering are made in other places of the first five books of the Old Testament. The thank offering was a form of the peace offering. It was not an offering made because of sin. This offering that he's talking about is an extra offering. It was given in time of fellowship with God. Perhaps after God had delivered the offerer from something that he wasn't expecting it out of, and he just had so much thankfulness in his heart. He wanted to express extra gratitude. He, it, it wasn't in the normal lineup of offerings he would bring annually to the temple. It was an extra that he brought. It wasn't required, technically speaking. An Israelite could live his entire life as a faithful member of God's chosen people and never bring this offering. But if you ever wanted to show God that you were sincerely thankful, this is the way to do it. The writer calls it the sacrifice of thanksgiving, if you look at verse 17. Because the thank offering involved a burnt offering of an animal taken from his flock. In other words, he would have to give up something expensive, something precious, in order to make this offering. And to lift the cup of salvation in verse 13 was also part of the thank offering. It was a, a cup containing about a pint of unmixed wine, but when the worshiper lifted this cup in the ceremony, he would not drink the wine. He would pour it out unto the Lord as a sacrifice. Furthermore, it's not mentioned in the psalm, but Leviticus 7 tells us that one bringing the thank offering would also bring a grain offering. This would be in the form of baked cakes with oil or unleavened wafers. Part of these were burned on the altar and part of them were shared by the giver with the priest. It was a lot like maybe baking biscuits or cornbread if you're in the South, right? And, and, and bringing them to the temple. That's about the shape of them. Notice that the Psalm also says in verses 13 and 17 that he will call on the name of the Lord because prayers and giving of thanks were offered as a part of this thank offering. And notice that two times the declaration is made, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. That is in the temple, among the priests, among the worshipers. The Old Testament often speaks of the peace offering in terms of paying a vow. In fact, the verb to pay here is the form of a word that most of you will recognize. It's the Hebrew word shalom. 
which of course means peace. We could actually read the text this way. I will make peace through fulfilling my vow. Because in the Hebrew language, shalom doesn't simply mean the end of warfare. It refers to something that's completed, something that's filled, or, or something that's fulfilled. I mean, if, if somebody does something for you that's great, or, or God does something for you, it, it's not fulfilled, it's not complete, and that the one receiving the gift says thank you in some way that measures up to the gift. That's what completes the cycle. That's what makes it whole or fulfilled. In this context, the one bringing the thank offering would be paying or fulfilling or making peace with a vow <clears throat> or a promise that he had made to God during his trial. In fact, when you read the lament psalms, those are the psalms where the writer is <clears throat> crying out to God <clears throat> because of some issue in his life. If you read those psalms, look for the vow you'll almost always find a reference to the vow in the time of lament. And, and oftentimes, it's simply a vow to praise God or to bring a thank offering. I think that all of us may have been there at some point. You know what I'm talking about? At one time or another, haven't you done this where you're facing some crisis and, and you say, Lord, if you will meet this need, if you will solve this problem, I will serve you with all my heart. I will be faithful. I will be devoted to you. There are many reasons we could pray these kinds of prayers to God, and they can be very sincere. But the test of their sincerity is whether we follow through with what we said we would do. Apparently, the psalmist made similar vows to the Lord during his illness, in his time of trial, and now he was gladly fulfilling the vow he had made voluntarily before the Lord. It demonstrates his sincerity. This is the kind of thankfulness that is worthy of God. It's a thankfulness that's sincere. It's not complicated. It's not just lip service. It's a genuine recognition of something wonderful the Lord has done that evokes a response of gratitude that wants to give in some way. In fact, when our gratitude is sincere, no one has to tell us to be thankful. But we can measure our sincerity by whether it is marked with tangible expression. For the psalmist, it was the preparation and offering of the burnt sacrifice, the wine, the cakes, the public prayers, the act of offering in the sight of the people. What about us? Do we thank God sincerely and is there a tangible, identifiable expression of that thanks? In the New Testament, for instance, our prayers and praise to God are still considered tangible expressions of thanks. The writer of Hebrews urges in Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. Do we at least take time to do this to pray to God, to spend conscientious, intentional time thanking Him for what He has done for us. Likewise, Paul says that when we, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're to do so with thanksgiving in our hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. And I try to remind us often when we come uh, to worship that our thanks and praise and confession and reflection ought to be a response to the truth that we know is in the Word of God. Beyond this, we also see the sacrificial giving in the New Testament on the part of those who give abundantly of their time and energy and resources as an act of gratitude to the Lord. But this giving all takes place not out of guilt, not out of duty, 
nor because we were told to do it, but out of a heart overflowing with real gratitude in response to what the Lord has done. And we can measure the sincerity of our gratitude by whether it is accompanied by some tangible expression. Now, there's a second quality that comes from our heart that makes our thanksgiving worthy of God. And as I said, it is related very closely to this first one. If the first is a heart of sincerity, the second is a heart of spontaneity. Spontaneity is when we do or say something on impulse or instinct, not premeditated, but unplanned, unrehearsed. When the idea occurs to us and we act on it, In fact, in theater, one of the key differences between a good actor and a great actor is spontaneity. There there are other qualities. This is a key one. You can tell if it's a good actor, if they're spontaneous. A great actor may have performed a role a hundred times and yet conveys the impression that the lines have never been spoken before, that the words are occurring to him or her for the first time, as if the actor did not know that he or she was going to say that or or she was going to do that. If you've ever wondered why the acting in, say, a BBC production is so much better than acting in, say, a Hallmark movie, uh, (laughs) spontaneity, has uh, script writing has a lot to do with it too, okay? But uh, spontaneity has a whole lot to do with it. So when a mother instructs her children to say thank you when they receive something, that's an act of obedience, and that's a good act of obedience, by the way. When you go through the motions of thanks mechanically, because it's expected of you, however, that is a thank you, but it's a thank you out of a sense of duty. Thanksgiving to God is spontaneous when it comes from the heart with no premeditation, with no prompting other than a recognition of what God has done, and we say thank you to Him in some way. When you look at verses 10 and 11, the writer of this psalm recounts his spontaneous cry for help. In his distress, he had uttered the words, I am greatly afflicted, and all mankind are liars. That was spontaneous. We cry out spontaneously when when we're under pressure. But after the Lord rescued him, his gratitude was just as spontaneous as his cry for help. And I think we see this in the repeated commitment that begins uh, four of the verses that we've already seen. Verse 13, I will lift the cup. Verse 14, I will pay my vows. Verse 17, I will offer sacrifice. And verse 18 again, I will pay my vows. Remember, the thank offering he's referring to is not required. The psalmist endeavors to offer it as a spontaneous action because of his his great gratitude. This is in contrast to other psalms that call upon people to thank God for his salvation. For example, if we examine Psalm 107, which we won't take the time to do this morning, uh, but the writer of that psalm says in verse 6, They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. So the same thing happened to these people that happened to the psalmist in Psalm 116. Therefore, the psalmist calls for the proper response in verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And in that psalm, this refrain is repeated three more times. Verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works of the children of man. 
But then in verse 22, he says, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. There's the offering of, there's this, the thank offering. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. You see, he's, he's, he's talking about the same things, the same circumstance, saved out of trouble, an offering of sacrifice is mentioned. But in Psalm 116, the writer declares on his own, this is what I'm going to do. In Psalm 107, it's different. You have somebody else calling them. This is the proper response. We've got to make this offering. And that is the difference between these two. Now, I have to add something really important here. Thanksgiving that is planned and ordered and premeditated and then carried out, like Psalm 107 is calling for here, this is not a bad thing at all, obviously. In fact, it's a very good thing. God asks for it. We plan ceremonies or dinners to thank people for their service or contribution. In the church, we plan times of prayer. We plan our weekly time of worship. We go through a pre-ordered liturgy. We send it out Saturday night. This is what we're going to sing on Sunday morning. This is how we're going to offer God thanks. We have a, a, a part in our service that's specifically for Thanksgiving. And we read Scripture and we sing and we offer prayers to God in order to thank Him at a particular time on Lord's Day. And when I say the words, and all God's people said, all of you respond with what? Amen. Amen. Right. And interestingly enough, I've never had to explain that tradition uh, to you. I don't remember ever telling anybody that. I just said it and everybody, everybody chimed in. You learn to say the appropriate word, a word that means, yes, I agree. This is right. This is the word. You, you, you say that, and yet it's perfunctory in the sense that I say it to say it, and you all say it. But that doesn't make it insincere. Yes, we have to be reminded from time to time not simply to go through the motions, and that's good, because that's the danger of planned worship, right? Planned Thanksgiving, anything that's expected of us. We, we can go into autopilot. But to plan to praise God in a particular way at a particular time is a way of honoring God. I mean, furthermore, planned, thoughtful, intentional worship has the ability to properly form in us, especially forming in our children as they grow up in our midst in the congregation, the proper way to worship God, the proper way to answer the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? For this very reason, God instructed the people in the Old Testament to bring the thank offering in a particular way. However, however, are these planned times of thanksgiving the only time we thank and praise God? That's the point here. That's what makes this psalm a little more biting for us, a little more challenging. We, we could all participate in Psalm 107, but are we participating in, in what the author is saying in Psalm 116? Times planned for you in corporate worship are great, but do you only read from a script as if you were acting in a drama? Or are there occasions when out of sheer love for the Lord, in recognition for what he has done, like the psalmist, you just want to lavish gratitude upon God? Roses presented to your wife on Valentine's Day can be a loving act of affection. And it can be completely sincere and meaningful. But if they are given only out of duty, only because it is expected, 
with no real affection or gratitude behind them, then they have lost their value. They no longer honor our wife. They actually demean her. But roses given on a random, ordinary day, just because I love you, somehow those are extra special. Because the sincerity of love represented by those roses is proven by their spontaneity. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, has a very helpful passage on this very idea. He says something like this. He says, suppose a husband asked his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this, unless you are motivated by a spontaneous affection for me, your expression of love is stripped of all value. Piper says, the fact is, many of us have failed to see that duty toward God can never be restricted to outward action alone. Yes, it must, we, we must worship Him. We must worship Him. But not that kind of must. And we could say this morning, yes, we must thank God, but not that kind of must. Our must should be the spontaneous must of the psalmist who says with delight and anticipation, I will offer to you, Lord, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. We could substitute and say, I must offer to you. I'm burning to do this. And in doing so, the psalmist echoes the words of David and other psalm writers whose spontaneous thanks can be seen throughout the Psalter, beginning with the scripture that called us to worship this morning. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Psalm, 90, uh, Psalm 9 verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 28 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 52, 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. Psalm 56, 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I must perform my vows to you, O God, but not that kind of must. I will render thank offerings to you. Psalm 86, 12, I give you thanks, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So, like the psalmists in the Psalms. Our own journey with the Lord should be punctuated by these times of heartfelt, spontaneous gratitude that finds sincere expression in our prayers and our giving and in our service. And finally, as we grow in our spontaneous and sincere response of gratitude to God, there's a third heartfelt response that is cultivated, that deepens and matures as we walk with the Lord. And that is, thirdly, a heart of devotion. Devotion is the word that expresses faithful and loyal love for God. So, if you're following this, if the sincerity of our thanksgiving is evidenced by tangible expressions of thanks, and the spontaneity of our thanksgiving vindicates those expressions, shows them to be genuine, then what does our devotion do? I think that our devotion demonstrates the long-term effects of a consistent heart of sincere and spontaneous gratitude. 
Do you love the Lord? Would you say you are devoted to the Lord? Devotion is the result of walking with the Lord over a sustained period of time. It is a deepening and growing love as we continually praise Him in recognition of who He is and what He has done for us. And and as we walk with the Lord, as we grow in Him, we continually learn more and more about what God has done and and the, the effects of it, the mercy of it. We see this devotion in the writer's expressions of love. Verse 1 sets the tone for the whole psalm when he says, I love you. I, I, I love the Lord, he says. How often do we simply tell the Lord that we love him? And in verse 15, the writer says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That can mean one of two things. It can mean even if the Lord takes us home, it is a precious transition of being brought into the loving presence of God. God looks at our death much differently as a believer in Christ. He looks at our death much differently than the world looks at death. It, for us, it is not the end. It is the beginning. It is a transition into the presence of the Lord. And although we would say, you know, I'm not really ready to go just yet, uh, when we, as soon as we're on the other side, we're like, oh my Wow, and I have no idea. I'm a fool. I have no idea what I'm talking about here. We have no idea what it will be like to be with the Lord. However, there's another way to read this verse. Something, something is precious because it's rare, like a precious gem or precious metal. So the writer may be saying that it is rare for one of God's saints to die because the Lord sustains him or her rare or seldom under the watchful eye of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. But either interpretation, the declaration is an observation on the part of the psalmist that the Lord loves him and he knows this. And he's devoted to him because he has cultivated a heart of gratitude toward God for all of his goodnesses, all of his rescue. I think we also see the writer's devotion in his expression of service. Psalm 116, 16 is one example. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Notice here, you have loosed my bonds, but I am your servant. You see the tension there? It's only from a true heart of devotion that you can find a person who is at the same time set free and yet a servant and a humble servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. I'm the slave of a slave. And I'm satisfied with that because I'm your slave. And I am glad to serve the Lord who rescued me. True thanksgiving finds its expression in a life of devoted service. We serve because we are so grateful. For only those who are in Christ know what it means to truly be set free. And and by God's grace, we as a people of God need to have this heart in us because we serve a great God who is worthy of our deepest thanks. So, as we look at this psalm of thanksgiving, we notice that there is something going on in the heart of the author that calls us to a thanksgiving like his, a thanksgiving worthy of God, a gratitude that does not belittle God but magnifies him. 
and it comes from a heart of sincerity and a heart of spontaneity, leading over time to a deepening heart of devotion. There is one common requirement, however, that is necessary for any of these heartfelt expressions. We have to recognize who God is and what He has done for us. This is a response. If we don't know what God has done, if we're not thinking about it, there's nothing to respond to. What are we grateful for? Ungrateful people are unaware what they ought to be saying thanks for. It is so easy in our entitlement-driven, self-focused world to follow the culture, focusing on what we do not have and what we want our situation to be that's different than it is so that we ignore the rich bounty and goodness that God has poured out upon us. And I would encourage you, even as, as I've been encouraging my own heart in this text, take some time this week. Some of you don't have the same schedule, especially if you're involved in education. Praise the Lord for that, right? Some of you don't have the same schedule this week. Let's take some extra time to meditate quietly, reflectively on the rich blessings of God. Thank the Lord for your salvation. Thank the Lord sincerely for each and every blessing. And ask the Lord to give you a greater awareness of how good He is. He is a good God. And as we do that, let's be sincere and spontaneous in our gratitude and may the Lord use that to deepen our heart of devotion so that we as individual believers worshiping God and that we as a church might offer to God a thanksgiving that is worthy of Him. Father, thank you this morning.